you ever uh, just been so blessed by scripture reading that you just can't stop? <clears throat> I think that's what we witnessed today. And thank you for uh, reading Philippians for us, Connie. Um, also, thank you, John, for your prayer. Uh, you can tell it came from the heart and uh, it was very thoughtfully written. So thank you for taking the time to do that to bless the congregation. Today I'm going to be doing something a little different, uh, <clears throat> partly because this is a passage that I have thought about for many, many years, and uh, I just love, I love Philippians 2. I love it. And um, I thought it would be helpful to do it with a uh, visual guide. I'm not saying that the word needs anything else added onto it. But for me to help, even for myself, to conceptually uh, understand uh, what Philippians 2 is showing us, uh, for me it's helpful to have the visual guide. And so hopefully it will be helpful for you too. And I will have to say, it might be a little theologically dense, but that's why we have the guide. And uh, hopefully uh, it will help us uh, understand Philippians 2 uh, a little bit deeper. Today's main point will be, as Christians, we should expect suffering but also glory because our Christ suffered and then was glorified. And we will dissect this passage by going through the pattern of Christ. And for some people who love theology, uh, you may also appreciate, as I go through Philippians 2, that we are going to see some Adamic Theology showing that Christ reversing the curse that Adam started in the Garden of Eden. Those for those who are maybe a little more theologically inclined. I should have tested this. Uh, you might have to close out the pro presenter. And um, I think it might be uh, overriding the screen. <clears throat> it's good all right also uh, i'll have to say um i was under the impression we had like a clicker and so i had this like amazing just like presentation for you guys where i would click through almost like every word and came to the church and realized our clicker does not work and so uh, you'll hear me saying next slide often and uh show some grace to the media team because um we're doing this on the fly here, so uh, I might tell you to go back or forward, you know, depending on where we are. But uh, if I say next slide, just trust me, and that's where we should just be. <clears throat> Some quick recap of where we are in Philippians. Philippians 1, we went over Apostle Paul telling the church, the Philippians, to live a life worthy of the gospel. And he writes this letter to them while he is in jail, knowing that if they were to live a life worthy of the gospel, it comes at a threat of possibly going to jail or even being killed. And so Apostle Paul tries to temper their expectations, telling them not only should they be prepared to suffer, but expect to suffer if you are a Christian. And 
comes, enters Philippians 2. We should expect to suffer because Philippians 2 gives us the framework of Christ's life, which we call the pattern of Christ. Please go to the next slide. And the next slide. Philippians 2, 6. Next slide. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is talking about Jesus. Here we can see the state that Christ is in before his incarnation. Before the Lord became Jesus Christ in human form, before his incarnation, this is the state that he was in. It says in Philippians 2, he was equal with God. Isaiah 6.3, this is in the Old Testament, right? So this is before Jesus was born. And it's Isaiah seeing a vision of the Lord in heaven. And this is what he sees. He sees a seraphim calling out to another seraphim. And for all eternity, they are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the estate that Christ is in before his incarnation was of glory. Next slide. He shared the glory with God because he was God. He needed nothing. Completely self-sufficient. That's why he's called the great I am. His I am is contingent upon nothing else other than himself. Notice here the stark contrast Apostle Paul creates between Christ and Adam. If you guys remember, what was Adam tempted with in the garden? A lot of us think Adam was tempted because he saw a delicious fruit. It was not that. He had plenty of food in the garden. But Satan comes in snake form, and what does he tell Adam? He says, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation behind eating the fruit was not because he wanted a good meal, but because he wanted to be God. So you have Adam who was not God, counted equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But here in Philippians 2, 6, we have Christ who was God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, proving to be greater than Adam. For those who, just quickly, for those you just may not understand why I'm talking about Adam and Christ right now. The reason why I bring it up and why it's important is because Adam served a certain role in humankind. He was a representative for all of us. For all of us. And so Adam being representative, whatever right, fate that he suffers, we too will suffer because he represents us. Christ plays the same role as Adam. He is a representative for us. And for those who are in Christ, will Gain the same fate as Christ does. So that's why scripture often says, those who are in Adam, 
bearers, and those who are in Christ, there's a distinct, uh, there's a distinction between the two. So this is why it's important to know why uh, Christ is the greater Adam. Next slide. Philippians 2, 7 through 8 says, but, em or, next slide. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. We see here that Christ in his state of glory humbles himself by condescending to us. And it's interesting in the way he does so. Christ, the way he humbles himself is by adding on to himself. Usually when you think of addition, you think you'll be greater. But for someone who is perfect, if you add anything onto that, will actually become less. So Christ, what he does, he adds onto himself flesh. He takes on the form of a human. So Christ enters a state of humiliation. Next slide. A quick side note here. In my tenure as a pastor, I've done about maybe five, six weddings so far. And one of the things that we go through in our premarital counseling, so for those who are dating and thinking about getting married, this will apply to you. I mean, it'll apply to anyone who's actually already married as well. But one of the things we like to go through in premarital counseling is actually Philippians 2. The reason being is because nowadays, it is quite hard for a lot of people to listen to the command when God tells us that wives should submit to their husbands. It's especially hard nowadays because oftentimes women, they come from a better pedigree. They come from a higher education. They come from a higher income maybe their own job or from their family. They may have higher IQs. And this is the case for a lot of marriages. However, in our sessions, we make sure that both parties know that when God calls wives to submit to their husbands, it isn't because the wife and the husband are not equal. In fact, it's the opposite. <laughs> if it wasn't the opposite, then it wouldn't be such a hard command to listen to. God would not take the time, he wouldn't find it necessary to tell wives, you must submit to your husbands. It's because that's a challenge. It's very challenging for a lot of people to do that. However, what we see here is Christ who is equal with God, was able to humble himself. So when God calls wives to humble themselves, even if they're equal or quote-unquote even better than their husbands, it's not a call to say they are unequal, but a call to humble themselves to reflect Christ. Next slide. Philippians 2.8b. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
by condescending to us, by taking on flesh, Jesus enters from a state of glory into a state of suffering. Next slide. Here again, we see a sharp contrast between Adam and Christ. Adam was in a place where he was in perfect conditions to not sin. He was in the Garden of Eden where there was no corruption of sin yet. Yet he still fell. But Christ enters into the world in a state of corruption. But even being bombarded with a multitude of temptations and sufferings, Christ still did not sin, showing that Christ is the better Adam. See, it's important to note that Jesus enters into a state of suffering in the corruption of sin, but it's important to notice that it's not he does sin, but he enters the corruption of sin. He takes on weak flesh susceptible to illness and pain. He is tempted by Satan in the desert for 40 days at the minimum. And even though he suffered under the corruption of sin, he never sinned. He lived a perfect life. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Next slide. Through our union with Christ, we are to share in Christ's suffering. If you guys don't know what union is, I seriously can spend an entire series talking about union. But the important thing to know about union is that if you have union with someone, you not only share the gifts and blessings with that person, you will also share the sufferings with that person. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 8.17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Romans 8.17 talks about being heirs with Christ. Because if you are one with Christ, right, if you have union with Christ, then why do you become an heir with Christ? Because Christ himself is a son of God. And if Christ is the son of God, he receives the inheritance of God. And if we are one in Christ, then we too receive that same inheritance. We are co-heirs. But not only do we receive the inheritance, but we also share in the sufferings. Sharing in suffering is necessary when you are in union with somebody. <clears throat> I like to make a lot of analogies to weddings and marriage uh, because I think it's one of the best analogies to describe our relationship with God. Uh, why do I think that? Well, because the Bible does the same thing. So I like to piggyback off that. In our premarital counseling sessions, there comes like that one day you know, the last meeting before the actual wedding, and we go over all uh, the logistics. And there's one section in the ceremony where we have to go over, and it's the vows. And uh, I get it. I get it. People, they want to write their own vows. They want to be special. Right? They want to have their own personal touch. I get it. Right? You know? And so they ask me, you know, should I write my own vows? And I say, you know what? You can. 
But the traditional vows are so good. It's, unless you can write one better than that, go ahead. But I love the traditional vows, okay? It's the one I used with Sammy. This is what I said. In the name of God, I, Sam, take you, Sammy, she's my wife, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. And this is my solemn vow. When we talk about union, it is necessary, right? We make a contract with that person we want to have union with, saying that no matter what, I'll be with you, that my union with you does not depend on our circumstances. Through the hard times and the easy times, through thick and thin, I will be with you. Suffering is necessary when it comes to union. You must suffer with those who, are you, who you are in union with. When uh, I got Sammy's permission to, ask, to say this story, now don't judge me, but when we were dating, <clears throat> I knew when Sammy said those vows to me, she meant it. Because while we were dating, <laughs> at the time, I was living in my parents' basement off a part-time pastor's salary. And I told her early on while we were dating that this is what you're going to get. <laughs> this is it. And in her heart, she said, I don't care. I love you. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. She didn't say that. She understood the cost of what it would be to marry me. She was willing to suffer with me even though now she finds out that I am a super genius programmer developer and I, and I have a full-time job. It's amazing. The moment she said, I will marry you, like, well, you know, we talked about it. It's like, yeah, I'm willing to commit. I said, all right, let me get a job. Let me get a real job now. How do we suffer as Christians? If we are to share in the sufferings of Christ because we have union with him, how are we to suffer? Like Christ, as long as we are not in the state of glory, we are in a state of suffering caused by the corruption of sin. And we will face suffering in three ways. First way, which I don't have to convince anybody, it is the suffering that we experience in the corruption of our own bodies, physical and non-physical. Our flesh is weak. We suffer physically. We have weak bodies. Anyone under 30 might not believe this, but anyone getting over 30, this is a true reality. You know things are going bad when you get an injury after playing a video game. <laughs> now, I'm pretty sure I twisted my ankle playing, you know, playing uh, Call of Duty with my friends. I, after I played, you know, one session, I was like, well, my ankle hurts. What did I do? Why, why does my ankle hurt? I'm not even standing. I'm sitting. Our bodies are weak. 
We're susceptible to disease, cancer, birth defects. The list goes on. I really don't have to convince you, especially with these last three years. But not only our physical bodies are corrupted by sin and we suffer, but our inner non-physical bodies, I'll call it. We'll call it the soul. I'll wrap it, I'll wrap it up in the idea of the soul. The soul will conclude or will include your mental, your emotional, and your heart, or we'll call it spiritual. We have mental health issues, rampant, even more than ever. Emotional disorders, people suffering from depression. And sometimes the non-physical and physical, they blend together, and because they're both corrupted, we suffer. Our hearts constantly suffer with unbelief, lacking faith, constantly worshiping other idols that we know are not God. We can obviously understand that things are not God, but we worship them like as if they are. That's how corrupt our hearts are. That's how easily we can fall into deception of our own hearts because of the corruption of sin has gone so deep and permeated to us in our inner soul. The second way we suffer. The enemy still exists. Satan, who will at all costs try to prevent unbelievers to come to Christ and also cause believers to stumble, rendering them ineffective for the kingdom of God. That is his goal. He will do it by any means possible. Worldly philosophies, deceptive schemes, and human cunning, all of these things are the enemies that oppose God. The third way we suffer, I'm going to sit on this one for a little bit. Creation has fallen. All of creation has fallen. Creation itself is suffering. See, when Adam fell, not only did humans experience the corruption of sin, but all of creation suffered the corruption of sin. Romans 8, 20 through 22 says, for the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation has fallen as well. A lot of times people say, you know, like, why does suffering exist? You know, oftentimes we say, well, because man is evil. Then someone will bring up, well, you know, there was like an earthquake that killed, you know, a, a whole family. Did, did, did someone's evilness cause that? Ultimately, yes. Adam's evil caused that because creation has fallen. Even creation has been corrupted. But I will say this. As Christians... Knowing that God created this earth, we should deeply care about environment and environmental issues. Uh, one time I was in New York, and this guy was eating a bag of chips on the bench in the park. And um, I still remember, he was eating Doritos. And I remember he was eating it, and then he looks into the bag to see if there's any more chips, and there was no more. 
And what he does is he just gets the bag and he threw it on the ground. <clears throat> I remember I was infuriated. Mainly because <laughs> literally right next to the bench was a trash can. <laughs> and if he had thrown the bag of chips away with his left hand instead of his right hand, it would have landed in the trash can. It took zero effort for him to have thrown it into the actual trash. Infuriated me. Why? Why? Because as Christians, we know who created this earth. And as Christians, we know that God has given us authority over creation. But with that authority comes responsibility. And we have responsibility over creation, then I think we should deeply care about environmental issues. I personally think this should be, I'm not political, I don't want to try to be political, but I understand this is really divisive in terms of in the political realm. Um, but I personally think it's a bipartisan, should be a bipartisan issue. Uh, left or right, whatever way you come from, I don't think there's many people who are out saying, yes, let's kill the world. Usually it comes with some other reason why. Um, but I will say that I think as Christians we should care about the environment. The way it should be done, the way it should be implemented, I understand there's a lot of debate and a lot of ways to do it. But I think as Christians, we should at least think about that. We live in a broken world, which is apparent. I don't have to do much to convince you. I still remember where I was July 8th, 2013. I was in Guatemala in a spare bedroom sitting on one of the beds. I still remember the weather that day. It was sunny. Psychologists say typically when it comes to trauma, people have near photographic memory of the events. That's why most people can remember where they were during 9-11. It was sort of like that. I got a message from my aunt saying that my grandma had just passed away. I remember all I could do is hold back tears because I was leading a missions trip at the time. And I didn't want it to hinder the trip. But when I got home, I went straight to the grocery store, picked up flowers, went to the cemetery. And while I was walking towards my grandma's grave, I remember just weeping, bawling, remembering all of these memories that I had of her. She was the one who took care of me most in my childhood. While my parents were working double shifts trying to make ends meet, my grandma was the one who cooked for me, played with me, and lovingly had to scold me for putting magnets on the TV because they make cool colors. Every July 8th, I go to the Fairfax Cemetery, and not once have I gone without crying. Remembering how, because of the corruption of sin, my grandma had to die. Next slide. Philippians 2.9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Because Christ lived a perfect life, in his death he was vindicated and was brought back to life. He resurrected and spent time with thousands of followers, sparking the early church. Then God exalted he enters a state of exaltation. Next slide. Christ was exalted because he earned it. He was the only one who could earn it, and he did. 
here again we see the stark contrast between Adam and Christ. Where Christ, or was Adam, falling into sin, temptation of sin, being cast out of the presence of God, we see Christ, who was obedient to death, even death on the cross, and being brought into the presence of God in exaltation. Next slide. Philippians 2, 10 through 11. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ is exalted and enters into a state of glory. Next slide. In this state, there is no more suffering. There is no more corruption of sin. Christ is in his physical, glorified, resurrected body where the corruption of sin can no longer touch him. Here, we see Christ finally reversing the curse of Adam. The curse caused by Adam's disobedience Christ reverses with his obedience. You see, Adam was cast out of paradise into a state of corruption caused by sin. But Christ enters into the heavens into a state of glory. And being one in Christ, having union with Christ, we get to share in that glory. Not only do we share in that suffering, but we share in his glory. Romans 8, 17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer. I read this a little earlier, but I didn't finish it. The rest of it says, In order that we may also be glorified with him. The suffering is necessary for the glorification. It was for Christ, and it is the same for us. The suffering prepares us for the glory ahead. And all the suffering mentioned previously finally ends forever. What were the three things? The suffering that we experience in our bodies. See, we all have glorified bodies as Christ does. Since we are one with Christ, we will be raised in the same glory as Christ was raised. We will be raised also in resurrected, glorified bodies just as Christ was. Two, the enemy still exists. In the state of glory, this enemy is tossed into the lake of fire. Thirdly, the world has fallen. In the state of glory, when Christ comes back, what does it say he brings with him? It says that when Christ comes back in his second coming, he brings with him a new heavens and a new earth. Why? 
Why? Because he does not only redeem the believers, but he redeems all of creation. A new heavens and a new earth. That's what, heaven, that's what Christ will bring in a state of glory. Not only do we stop suffering, but all of creation will stop suffering. Next slide. And this is the pattern of Christ. Christ humbled himself and condescended from a state of glory to suffering. In his suffering, he died a death on the cross, accomplishing all that God had commanded him to do. He then was exalted. And this is why we are expected as Christians to suffer. Suffering is a necessary consequence of our inseparable union with Christ. If Christ suffers, then we suffer. But this is also the exact same reason we should expect immense glory. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. As Christ was raised to life in resurrection glory, we too should expect the same. And this is why every July 8th, when I go to the cemetery, my eyes filled with tears going to visit my grandma's grave, it is always met with great hope because I know my grandma is enjoying glory forever where one day all the saints will gather. I don't know the suffering you may be going through, but I can tell you this. All of us who believe, we are co-sufferers with you. We may not know exactly what you're going through, but you are not alone. Ultimately, you will never be alone because Christ suffered. One thing is for sure, that our greatest suffering that we experience on earth is only temporary because our glory is secured through Christ. Let us pray. Father, I pray that looking into the pattern of your life and how you came from glory to glory and the journey between, I pray that that will encourage us to be able to face the hardships we may face. I pray that it will prepare our hearts to be able to face the challenges that we all have to face every single day. I pray, oh God, ultimately, us sharing in your suffering will confirm that one day we will share also in your glory. That we can look back in history and see that Christ you have resurrected. Confirming to us, yes, one day there will be a great resurrection. That we will all return in similar fashion. I pray let this be ultimately encouraging for our believers. And for those who do not yet believe that they want to. Receive this amazing union that we have with you, Christ, that you will open their hearts to receive. This is my prayer. Amen. And let's respond and worship to our God.
sing. You came to us a man in very nature, God. Appears for our iniquities as you hung upon the cross. But God exalted you to the highest place and gave to you the right to bear the name above all names. That at the name of Jesus we should that you are Lord when you come in glory for the world to see we will sing hail to the King Hail to the King. 